So I was thinking about uh, continuing in a certain way the discussion we had last week about free will and is there such a thing of free will and is everything conditioned? Uh, where is their free will? And I was thinking about putting that together with uh, talking about intention and maybe intention seems to be something that changes actions. and So maybe intention is the important point. And uh, particularly when I gave the instructions this morning, I was thinking of giving the instructions in terms of um, the, the, the truth of the way I see them all together, which is really um, practicing being okay with whatever situation is happening recognizing it, seeing it, knowing it, and not fighting with it. Really, the deepest principle that the Buddha taught is that suffering is being in contention with with that which is essentially out of our control. That suffering is the mind struggling because it feels it needs to have things different, the craving that things need to be different. Not the, the desire or the wish that things be different, All the people that we mentioned this morning that are sick, we wish they were well. How to have a mind that's able to wish they were well, very much, and at the same time, not be in contention with life itself, because that's the way life is, with people coming and going. I have very much been thinking in these last days, in this week, in which our dear friend Martha Lai is really passing out of this life, if not today, for sure tomorrow or the next, very soon, uh, about holding this in the context of coming and going, and how hard it is uh, not to have the mind fall down over the loss of someone that you love a lot. When Martha was in the hospital for an acute phase of her illness um, two weeks ago. She was in the oncology ward at Santa Rosa Memorial, which, for whatever reason, is on the same floor as the neonatal ward. So uh, waiting for the elevator are people coming out from visiting dying people and people coming out with balloons and um, car seats and uh, all the paraphernalia of people coming into their lives. And maybe they planned it that way because when my experience was you come out from this particular corridor where in this room and in this room and in this room and in this room are people with very serious illnesses and some of whom won't live very long. And you come to the elevator, and here comes a person with a bouquet of balloons, or uh, here gets a person out of the elevator with a car seat. Or... So it's a little bit like we make our prayers and intentions at the end of the time that we sit in the morning, and then we make the announcements. There's going to be a march in Oakland next, next Tuesday. There's going to be a this, and there's going to be a that, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. And that, which sometimes feels to me like an uh, an awkward juxtaposition, like an awkward move, like it seems so uh, profoundly still and of such 
enormous importance when we're mentioning all our people who are in some difficulty. But then I think that that's a, there's a moment in which the putting it in a context doesn't change the difficulty, it just makes it a larger space for that difficulty to rest in. I listen, when we, I listen as you do, to all the people that we mention. And then somebody says, uh, so-and-so who is finally pregnant, and after trying a hard t- long time, and you hear like, you feel it if you don't hear it. I've read, ah, okay. And we heard about the 12-year-old girl who was so gravely ill, who's now well. I think, oh. Or the skunk who made it across the highway this morning <laughs> against all odds. So, oh, okay. Skunk gets another little bit more. And it puts it in the a little bit, at least I feel in myself, oh yeah, that's happening too, that's happening too, that's happening too. And I've really been thinking so much about what it is that keeps the mind from falling in on itself when it's really faced with sadnesses and disappointments. When I gave the instructions this morning for the meditation, I really was listening to what I was saying and I really got it for myself as I heard it. I thought, oh, that's a very good instruction. The one that everything is here, that the breath is always here, coming and going. The thoughts and other kinds of about, you know, what should I shop for? What am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about that? What should I make for dinner? What, What should I say to that person who called and left that message? Whatever, the thoughts that come into that, they're as real as the breath. They come and they go. It's not about not having thoughts the rest of your life. The feelings that come up along with those thoughts. Oh, that's a great idea. I'll make that for dinner. I wonder where I can buy the ingredients or oh, how am I going to deal with that? Those, those don't go away as a result of meditation. They make a certain uh, aura in the, in the mind. The mind gets happy with certain kind of thoughts, gets unhappy with certain kind of thoughts. What I, th- I think that we are hoping to condition, what I am hoping to practice, is a mind that is able to say, all right, that's what's here. Mindful of sadness, but that's okay. You can do it. Mindful of excitement about, you know, what to do later. Okay, you can do it. You can do it later. Now we can just rest and get ready to do that later. Now that we're here, we can't bake the cake for dinner now. We can think about it and say, great, I'll do that later. Now I'll rest here. And the thought about baking the cake and the thought about what should I do with this problem, they're not better or worse thoughts. They're just things that come into the mind. So everything comes into the mind and every kind of feeling. And to be able to condition a mind that says, all right, that's what's here. I see it. I'll deal with it wisely. I'll deal with it, I hope, wisely. In the meantime, it's okay. The thing that we have been telling Martha all this week, in moments that she struggles, it's okay. Everything is okay. There is nothing that you have to worry about. Mm. Don't worry, it's okay. This is all right that this is happening. It's even all right that you're frightened. Well, we do things so that she shouldn't be, but it's all right. These are the things that happen. It's okay. I think that as human beings, we keep startling. It's not okay. But it's okay. You know? It really is okay.
I remembered. Um, I'll tell you this: this, this, this thought that came in my mind that many of you probably have heard me tell us before about the way in which there's a break in the clouds sometimes, and uh, at least I think of it as a break in the clouds in the mind. I get preoccupied with something or other, and then there's a break in the clouds. So for the two or three people who probably have not heard this story before, because it's such an old story, many, many years ago, not long after I'd begun my meditation practice, I was at a meditation retreat, and uh, I had some thought come up in the meditation that brought up a tremendous amount of sadness. It was a thought about a long time ago in my life. And the, the truth is, at this point, I don't remember what thought it was. I don't remember which particular dynamic in my life seemed so sad to me. But I felt sad about it. And earlier on today, uh, in the early group, I was talking about the fact that um, we seem to file memories in certain file cabinets in our mind so that when we remember a memory of a certain dynamic, Remember all the other times that that same dynamic happened, all the way back to when we were three or four. So in the course of this one particular day, I thought I remembered this sad thing. I remembered this other sad thing on that same wavelength, and yet another time that that happened. I honestly don't remember what kind of a sad thing, but I genuinely felt the sadness of that particular wavelength of experience all the way through my life. And I felt at the end of the day just enveloped in a fog of of sadness. And uh, I was weepy, and I left the meditation hall. And this was quite different from my usual experience where I struggled with meditation, just like everybody struggles. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes easy, sometimes pleasant, sometimes not. But this was so filled with unpleasant fog of sadness. And I really felt like I cannot shake this mind state. What will I do? And I had the thought, maybe I'll go to my room. I'll take a shower. That'll be bracing. I'll feel better if I take a shower. And I started to walk along the path to my cabin that I shared with several other women. I start trudging down the road. I'm going to go there. I'm going to take a shower. And I was thinking, when I get there and I take a shower, I might feel better then. Then, at that moment... There's a bell that was outside the uh, dining hall, and this big gong, someone rang the big gong to announce that it was tea time. In those days, tea was really tea. Here, we, we say tea time, and it's a whole meal, really, but 25 years ago, it was actually tea. Uh, and uh, on, a, on a really good day, it was tea and an apple, or tea and a plum, and on an unusual day, it was tea and cookies. And, it, and so the bell rang, and just for a moment I had the thought, I wonder if there are cookies for tea. <laughs> now, and it's really important, I mean, I have to tell you that if there had been cookies, I wouldn't have eaten them, because I don't like sugar. I just never liked sugar. I did, I don't, it fogs my mind. I, so I, it isn't that they, it inspired lust in me, even. So, oh, I'll get the cookies. Uh, it's just, it was just a plain, neutral thought. I wonder if there are cookies for tea. And in that moment, I realized that 
as I had that thought, that in that thought there was no sadness. It was just a plain, neutral thought. I wonder if there are cookies for tea. And I realized there was no sadness, and I had been feeling like I was in a cocoon of cotton wool. Sadness, sadness, sadness. And I realized that that moment was free of suffering. And I thought about the experience of watching um, shuttle launchings from Cape Canaveral, where you watch and they say, we're at 17 seconds and counting, and then we're at uh, 9 seconds and holding because it's cloud cover, and it's cloud cover, and we can't launch until the, you know, as long as there's cloud cover, because you can't. So I thought about when you've watched the, this is 25 years ago, I guess there were more, anyway, you've watched the launch, you wait for it, wait for it, and then they say, okay, now, okay, there's a break in the clouds, so now there's the countdown, and it's out. And I thought about that, and I thought, that's exactly my situation. If I notice the break in the clouds, I can think to myself, I'm out of here. You know, that in this moment, I, I get to choose. And that, you know, the moment before, I could not have chosen, okay, I'm not going to be sad. I could not have said to myself, all those experiences there in the past, that was then, now is now. All the wisdom thoughts in the world, that's the past, now is now, it's a different time, and then... You're a different person, da-da-da. Everything, when the mind is caught up in some dense fog of confusion, you can't get out of there. But you can't get a toehold to get out of there. But when there's a break in the clouds and you know it, you can say, I'm out of here. And so when I did the instructions this morning, it wasn't I'm out of here out of a dense fog, but I'm out of here out of whatever preoccupying little story has come by. And I'm just going to do this breath with the intention of really deepening my composure in the mind. Composure is a great word. We don't use it so much. We say concentration, but concentration often has for me the feeling of uh, like, mm, oh, I, I have it inexorably linked in my mind. Maybe I shouldn't admit this and put it in everybody else's mind. But I grew up with Superman cartoons. And Superman used to concentrate really hard. And he could make holes in the sides of great battleships or in walls with his concentration with kryptonite thinking. Anybody remembers that here? So now I've probably filled everybody else's mind with Superman and kryptonite. But they show pictures of Superman thinking. Mm, and the, so I like the word composure better because it's like concentration, but it's not quite so boring, the holes in the sides of walls. In every time you take a breath and you really pay attention to it, if the next several are flurried and you take another breath, in the meantime you're building up the composure. That it doesn't have to be every single moment a moment of attention, but moments of attention are cumulative. So while I'm on that roll, just to complete that story, it would have been probably on uh, a retreat, not maybe even that very retreat 25 years ago or not so far from it, that I met a monk named Usivali, who um, was Sri, Sri Lankan, and he died not long after that retreat 
who said to me in our one interview, something that shaped my understanding forever, I had said to him that uh, I got up, as was my habit, at one or two in the morning, started to sit, and would fall asleep soon after that. I'd feel great. I'm going to get really an early start. I'd get dressed. I'd go to the meditation hall. I'd sit down, and five minutes later, I'd be sleepy. So I would do some walking, and then I'd feel like I was up, and then I'd sit down, and then I'd be sleepy, and then I'd walk, and I would be tired, and I didn't want to walk, so then I'd sit down and up and down and up and down and up the whole night long. And the meditation hall was quite far from the rooms where we slept, cabins where we slept, so it wasn't that all easy to go back to bed. And I had a cabin with several other women. You don't want to wake them by coming in and out. So I'd stay there all night, and I said to him, maybe it's not worthwhile. Maybe I should just stay in my bed when I get up at one or two. And he said, no. He said, uh, it is worthwhile. He said, it doesn't matter how often you fall asleep. He said, when you wake up, pay attention. Am I breathing in or am I breathing out? Pay attention in that moment. If you pay attention in that moment, oh, I'm awake. Okay, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. It'll probably carry over to the next moment and to the next. He said, it doesn't matter how often you fall asleep, every moment of mindfulness can, erases a moment of conditioning. And I just loved that line. I thought about it all these years, that it doesn't matter in between. It matters, you know, we're all waking up slowly. And in between, you say, oh. So I think to myself all the time, I, you know, I, I see this big cosmic blackboard I figure I'm erasing a moment of conditioning. And then I have to think, how fast am I scribbling? You know, I have to be erasing faster than I'm scribbling, so I should be sure to be ahead of it. But the, I think, actually, that making intentions are erasing, are, are at least helping me not to scribble quite so much. So I want to I take back, I, I want to go back now to this break in the clouds. I... I, will not, I won't tell the story because I told it a couple of weeks ago. But remember I told you the story, of, um, the story about uh, having gotten on this long flight coming back from Europe and having somebody die on the flight. Remember that? And the fact that... Um, the, the, sorry to say this again on the tape, but to all posterity... That my husband and I, uh, for all intents and purposes, and most of the time, are each other's best friend and have been for 53 years, had had like gotten on each other's nerves really badly the day before that flight. We're kind of pouting with each other. We don't fight, actually. We just don't talk to each other for a while. <laughs> Everybody, it's a little pout. It's, an, it's, it's the timid person's way of having a fight, I think. <laughs> but, um, um, that's not that good, but anyway, uh, we're exaggeratedly polite to each other. And, and what happens is after a while, everybody's mind settles down, and we realize that we're being idiotic, and we apologize, and we start again. But, but it's, you know, I, wish it, I, I wish it had happened faster. On this particular flight, what happened was that somebody died on the flight, and we knew about it, and... All of a sudden, it like wakes you up. It screws your head on straight. Whatever you were fighting about is actually stu- is altogether stupidness. I mean, there's nothing that's worth wasting a moment of time about. This week, that in, in which my friend Martha is dying, um, my grandchildren are aware of that are aware of her passing. So we keep talking about it, 
And I, I, I told Grace, I said, um, we're talking on the phone, I said, I'm learning a lot. And she said, what are you learning? I said, I'm learning how short life is and that you only have a certain number of days and you can spend it being loving and sweet to people who are terrible. So I don't, I don't feel like I have any days to waste. I said, what? I said, and Grace is always within an arm's length of her calculator. I said, let's figure it out. 65 times so 365, so it came out to something. But it was almost 30,000, or it was somewhere 27,000, I can't remember. Anyway, I said, okay, 75, 75 times 365. Then we were up almost to 30,000. We went back and forth, back and forth. If you live 82.2 years, you get 30,000 days. That's not so much when you think about it, is it? That's what, I mean, that's what that's she... a good life. That, well, yeah, that's a long life. You get 30,000 days. Grace said, that seems like a lot of days. Didn't seem like so many to me, but then I mentioned that to somebody yesterday, and they said that's because you're way ahead of Grace on how many days left, you know, so that it doesn't seem like... But I, what I keep thinking is the break in the clouds allows one to put everything into a context. And this is really what I want to say. It isn't that only that in that moment I realize life is brief. Do I want to spend it in acrimony, in a pout, or do I want to spend it in a loving way? That's part of it. The other part is when your head gets screwed, when my head gets screwed on straight, I realize that the one or two things that my mind has settled on that it's steamed up about are one or two things in the context of a whole life and a whole person. I mean, clearly you don't stay with somebody 53 years if you don't like them and if they haven't got a lot of sterling qualities about them. When we get mad at somebody, we get mad at one thing about them. We don't get mad at the whole picture. But at that point, what you see is the whole picture. When you get mad at life, it's you've forgotten the whole picture, really. You get mad at the traffic. You've forgotten in that moment that it's amazing that someone invented cars or that we can commute long distances and go to work or that we're still healthy enough to operate a car and drive heavy machinery. We've forgotten that there's a sun coming up and skunks running across the road and that it's starting to be spring and there are daffodils in the midline. We've forgotten everything. It's that everything that we ever knew, not only metaphysical truths about the, the, the impermanence of every moment, but the whole truth about how life is and how amazing and how enormous it is. Here is a story that you haven't heard before because it happened this week. And um, it's one of the stories that we keep telling each other around Martha. Um, Here's the event of Martha dying of pancreas cancer. Around this event, uh, she needed to be in the hospital for 12 days until a week ago when she came home with hospice. Uh, Before that time, you have to go back to the picture bigger, bigger, bigger. In December, around Christmas, um, a woman died. A woman named Norma died. I don't know Norma. A woman named Norma died. Uh, She uh, had a cat uh, that she was very fond of. 
Uh, and one of the things she worried about was who would take care of her cat. Norma was 75 years old, had a cat. Uh, some friends of hers, um, who are part of the people now helping to take care of Martha, um, friends of Norma took the cat and promised to find a home for it and that that was would be a loving home. Um, meantime, they had the cat. Norma died. These two men had the cat. Martha took acutely ill and went to the hospital. One of the nurses that took care of Martha was a, a woman who seemed particularly, uh, that Martha and her partner Joel liked very much. And uh, somehow in the conversation, which wasn't related, I, I asked Joel, did you just say to Dee out of the blue, uh, do you f- feel like having a cat? I mean, that, that didn't seem to be the conversation. I mean, Martha's sick. There are a lot of other things to talk about. She said, I don't know why I said it. I just said it. Like, would you feel like having a cat? And she said, you know what? I've never had a cat, but I think a cat would be good. So they bring the cat to her house. This is all happening in the last week. They bring the cat to her house. Cat loves it. Cat goes into that house and behaves like it's been there all the time. And uh, the woman calls back the next day, totally, this is like a, a, a date, the woman and the cat, to see if they liked each other. Cat was very happy, came right in, rubbing himself up and down against the woman and doing all those cat things that seduce people into keeping them. And <laughs> woman called back the next morning and said, I love this cat. This is a fabulous cat. And it was exactly... This woman, so the woman has now inherited the cat. She also inherited quite a sizable stipend that Norma left for the care of the cat, which she didn't know about when she took the cat. This woman has an adopted son of many years who came from Bhutan. His family back in Bhutan uh, will now have a house built for them with this cat bequest. So we keep thinking all of this week about this family in Bhutan that is now going to have a house uh, and that Martha's death is part of the chain of events that is causing that to happen. Everything is a part of the chain of events. It also depends, it depends on Martha having had this illness and being in the hospital at just this time and Joel saying at just a certain time to one of the nurses, who were one of many nurses, but she didn't say it to the other nurses. She just said it to this particular nurse. Would you feel like having a cat? And this nurse who never had a cat felt like having it and didn't know about the bequest. Oh, that's so cool. But the whole, the whole story. So we've been sitting there thinking, well, who of us actually believes that someone is running this show? You know, that... <laughs> But if you wanted to believe that there was a, a, a master plan for running the show, but you know, it's always said, well, you know, but you know, if there was a master plan, but you know, actually this week nobody has said that. You know, if we went out and asked people, is there a master planner? Somebody would say, if they're planning, they're not doing a good job because look at this and that and the other bad thing in the world, not a good enough planner. But something looks like it planned this job, you know. Or if it didn't plan this job, 
the serendipity of this job is really lovely. This particular job, serendipitously, you know, the word karma doesn't mean bad things or good things. It doesn't actually mean um, what happens to people. It means action. That's usually translated wrong. You say that's somebody's karma. What you mean to say is that's the fruit of their karma. Uh, It's what happened to them because of how they were. But it's all very complicated karma. You know what I was thinking about, the, the line about karma that seems elucidated so much to me by that whole story about the cat. And There's a line uh, that is meant to preserve equanimity in, in one's mind, and uh, it's an equanimity med- meditation. And it begins with the line, every individual is heir to their own karma. Their happiness and their unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. I actually, I'm thinking those are two separate statements. Maybe they have to do with each other. But everyone is heir to their own karma. I didn't like that so much when I first heard it because it sounded like uh, you got what you you deserved. Or I think that's not the level of karma that I trust to be true. That uh, I think karma is uh, completely um, impartial uh, and really impersonal. And doesn't, although in the texts it talks about a lot about deeds, conditioning, other lifetimes, but you know that's not the level, and it might be true. Deeds condition this lifetime, I'm sure, in terms of how good you feel and how easy your mind rests. But I've been thinking about every individual being heir to their own karma, meaning things work out in such a complex way. Who could know that when something happens to somebody, it's not because they deserved it or they didn't deserve it or... uh, it happens to them because that's the way things fell out, you know, just because it's a world and things fall out in different ways. You talk about what if they'd ask the next nurse or what if you had taken the plane <coughs> after the one that you took and that one was the plane that crashed or always the people who are late for who, who the news people report after a plane crash. They report on somebody who said, you know, I was so upset I was late for the airport and I was so upset. And then the plane that I missed was the one that crashed. There's a way in which you think you never know what you should be upset about and you never know what's going to happen next. So even when I said, you know, we'll have that march on Valentine's Day, if we'll be there on Valentine's Day, that if I could remember actually that I never know that we never, any of us know. That would keep screwing my head on straight, you know, <coughs> as good as any other meditation. You know, this may be the last shot I have at saying, you certainly wake up the mind. Their happiness or their unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes. 
That's a hard one to know if they've translated it exactly right. I think what it means, not that it depends on, the action that I think it depends on is the action of the heart in being in contention or not in contention. That if I think about my happiness, my happiness doesn't depend uh, on what's happening. As mu- I think is what that means, as much as it depends on how I manage to relate to what's happening. And, uh, I, and I'm really clear about that happiness is different from being pleased, you know. That, that, that's happiness in the sense of um, a, uh, an engaged and caring heart, still being able to be in caring and compassionate relationship to life, not having disengaged myself, feeling connected. That would be happiness. So I'm certainly affected by good and bad news. And I think we all are. I, don't, I wouldn't want it to be otherwise. There's sometimes an impression that the... Not, I don't think anymore so much. Maybe in the early days of meditation. There was the impression that if you meditated enough to sort of saw the coming and going of things in a way that it didn't affect your heart. I, I don't think we any of us think that anymore. I don't want that to happen to me. I want it to affect my heart. I want to be able to laugh and cry and sit down and have supper with friends and, and remember that the seventh grade is going to meet on Tuesday for their basketball game one way or another and thinking I don't want to lose the faith that that this is a manageable thing, this life, the coming and the going out of it. I'm particularly thinking about that because somebody mentioned um, that Sister Aquinas is sick and I, uh, I don't even know who mentioned it, but I have a very good memory of meeting with Sister Aquinas years and years ago when I was teaching courses for Dominican College around one particular meeting. She was um, uh, dean of studies, I think, at the time. And I was teaching, uh, among other things, weekend courses, one-unit weekend courses for students who needed yet one more religion course credit. And we would teach them out at Bolinas in the, in the house that the Dominican sisters have out there. So I was mentioning different names for uh, courses that people would be interested in taking. So I said, how about a course on the vicissitudes of faith? And she said, what do you mean? So I said, you know, everybody's faith wobbles. You know, sometimes you feel really strong about it, but then you get challenged by life and your faith wobbles. And I genuinely saw that she was not getting what I was saying. (laughs) And... uh, she said, not mine. So, uh, uh, not in a bad way, like, yeah, yeah, but she said, not mine. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I think that's wonderful. I said, why do you think? She said, uh, I, I can't remember. She said, I, I've, I've never actually doubted that God loves me. And I said, why do you think you have that? Uh, I said, it's wonderful, you know. I rejoice in that. that you know, my own experience is wobbly. I said, uh, why do you think you have that? 
And she said, um, I'm not sure, she said, but I think it's because my parents loved me very much. She said about her cancer, I'm okay, I'm a, I'm a tough old bird. Oh. Will you tell her I said hello? So I have one more story to tell you out of this week's paper on the on the point of uh, the break in the clouds moment. Because I want to make the case that the break in the clouds moment happens all the time. And uh, it doesn't have to be anything as dramatic as physical life or death. This is a pretty dramatic story. But I'm going to ask you after that to think about breaking the clouds moments in your life and when they were. This is the last page of last Sunday's New York Times magazine. And uh, it's written by Dennis Watlington, who's a, a filmmaker and a writer. This is a piece out of his memoir. On a cold East Harlem morning in 1966, when I was 15... Anybody here was 15 in 1966, 1951? Would mean, yeah. 50 or 66? 66. It means born in 51. Yeah. So Dennis Watlington. I was born, when I was 15, my best friend Stinky and I ran inside an old tenement building to shoot up. After scaling six flights, we arrived at the landing that led to the roof. Our first day's stab at Ghetto Kids Roulette was about to begin. We were our day's first stab. We were gleefully unfolding the pouch containing our heroin and paraphernalia when trouble arrived. The faint sound of footsteps ac- activated our uh-oh meter. As the sound grew louder, Stinky and I each looked at each other before harmonizing out loud, the police. We made a break for the door anticipating an activity almost as scary as a bust, roof jumping, but it was nailed shut. Trapped, we discarded our razor blade sized size cellophane packets of poison in the void of the spiraling stairwell, thinking in terms of not mine defense. Looking down, we saw a strong arm in cop blue extend itself and turn its palm upward. And then we watched one packet flutter right into the palm of the dusky hand. Cornered like rats, we were confronted by a young, six-footish, well-built African-American known on Dope Fiend Row as Mike the Cop. He patted the club in his hand. First things first, I'm not going to have to use this, am I? Yeah, Stinky and I vigorously shook our heads and negatives. We were powerless children. I was already on juvenile probation. So everything that came out of Mike the Cop's mouth sounded to me like incarceration. This bust would buy me three to five years of jail mail. I started to imagining myself in impending prison garb with a long line of numbers on my chest. Stinky was in even worse shape. Having just turned 16, he had crossed the line between juvenile and hardcore. Mike ordered us up against the wall. After picking up the paraphernalia, he commanded us to face him. But I had a fear-driven impulse suddenly. I got down on my knees and started singing Mammy. I sang for my freedom with the passion of the great Al Jolson during his winter garden peak. From an early age, I had been forced to respect education and work was now paying. And the work was now paying a surprising dividend. 
for I was able to enunciate, articulate, and gesticulate beyond the ghetto pale. I could feel Stinky's jealousy as Mike's attentiveness increased. Get up off your knees, Mike instructed. I obeyed. I'm going to take a gamble, he said. Something tells me that there's more brains in that big head of yours than you realized. He took a deep breath, looked skyward as though searching for a divine tiebreaker before sternly motioning his head towards the stairwell. Get out of here, he barked. I made a beeline for it. And Stinky tried to sneak into my draft, but Mike blocked his path. His well-deserved reputation for being a tough guy returned. I could hear Stinky screaming in protest as I ran down the stairs. I sprinted four blocks before I allowed myself to believe that I had been let out of the noose that I would have dangled for for the remaining of my teenage years. Skipping along. After that incident, I kicked my three-year habit. A fluke of the civil rights era landed me in an elite New England prep school where my newfound love for the power of words convinced me that the pen was mightier than the syringe. Years later, I was working at the double Dutch rope jumping competition in the New York Coliseum. I was there as a film assistant taking sound for a small group. Passing the judges' table, I heard a voice. Hey, you. I turned and discovered Mike the cop. Aren't you the kid I gave a pass to about ten years ago, he asked. I told him I was. Gave a sigh of relief. He said, I made a snap decision that someone must have put polish on your black behind. We laughed, but it scared the hell out of me. I was on the lookout for you for a long time because you could have hurt someone. If you'd been out there, believe me, I would have taken care of business quick. I told him how much I owed him. With his nod, without his nod toward that stairwell, death or the big house would surely have found me. That was good cop work, man, I said. No, it wasn't, he said, but it was a good decision. We engaged in a black man's handshake, and I thanked him for all I was worth. So, that make you cry, yeah? It's a, it's a break in the clouds. That sometime, that here's a moment in this boy's life where all of a sudden his mind gets clear. And if he's, what am I going to do? And that's it. Okay, I don't have to tell you. Find the person next to you and talk about what I just read and why that's a break in the clouds and how, and what more important, maybe even more important, where have you had a break in the clouds in your life? Before you t- look, so as a matter of fact, think about your own life. What was a break in the clouds where you could see I need to do something else? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm forgetting the first instruction because the second instruction is better. <laughs> the first instruction, I, I'll tell you the answer to the first instruction so it's out of everybody's mind. There are moments when your head gets screwed on straight where sometimes when people are dying, they say, my whole life opened up before me. I, I have the feeling that in that moment, he said, when he's on the roof, and looming before him going to jail. Your mind clears. You can only think about incarceration. Somehow your mind clears. You realize, I don't want to do this. And through him comes an energy, and somehow, I think it's a channeled, it's a channeled force. Like, what will I do? 
he does what he has learned to do that will get this person's attention, that will give him a pass. So he doesn't think about it. You, you could say about that, that that's an insight. He just knows what to do in that moment. He does something, he gets Mike the cop's attention, says, you got something more in that head than what I thought you had. Out of here. And he realizes, close shave, I'm out of there, I'm really out of there. Kicks a three-year habit, says in one sentence, but that's a big deal, kicking a three-year habit. That's a very big deal. And then all the things that happen. Somehow kicks the habit, he gets, some teacher must have said, this is the way to apply to that prep school and get a, a scholarship to it, because it's not a usual thing for a child in tight circumstances to get. Gets in that prep school, gets in a film training program, becomes a filmmaker and an author, and gets a life. And in that moment, but I'm out of here. So I thought we would all think for a minute about a moment in which we have seen a light. Maybe not I'm out of here in terms of a new life, but I'm out of this way of thinking. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 8, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.